Praise God. Um, thank you to Praise Team, as always, for leading us in worship of God. I um, want to thank you for coming. This is a very special weekend, as you may have just heard, um, 28th anniversary of our church um, starting, and so this is a really exciting time for us. It's exciting also because you are here, and if you're new, um, we want to especially say thank you for coming and being part of the church today. Um, if you're a regular, thanks again for coming. We always um, are better because uh, we come together. Uh, I um, had made mention that this weekend we've been, uh, we've been blessed by having a, a speaker from, uh, from up north in Boston. Dr. Josephine Kim has been sharing with us some issues of, uh, related to um, what it means to be uniquely Asian and Asian American and, and how to um, take what God has given to us ethnically and, and, and uh, to see the gift that it is and how we can uh, use that uh, and cultivate better relationships with our families and things. And maybe some of you are here because you've gotten, uh, seen the flyer and uh, you saw that she may have been giving a testimony today. Um, she's not going to be doing that during our worship service, but um, at 1.30 today in the main sanctuary, we'll be having a session where she'll be sharing uh, with us for one last time. So please do make it a point to, to be there. Uh, we're in the middle of a series here as we've been looking um, eight weeks into it, actually. We're uh, almost at the halfway point this series, but we started eight weeks ago, and we've been talking about uh, looking at the life and, and the experiences of this man whom we call the teacher. As he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, his experiences of everything that he's looked for under the sun, he, he saw all the meaningless and all the despair in life. He's like, what do we make of this? If life is all of these ups and downs in a series of unconnected events, and what purpose is there for living? What is the meaning of life, and what is this stuff all about? And so he had the resources available to himself to, to try all the things under the sun that people in this world say would give us meaning in life. And he found all of these things to be completely bankrupt insofar as trying to provide meaning and something transcendent and bigger to wrap our lives around. He found that riches failed, that pleasures didn't please for long enough, work didn't work, advancement, and all of these things, status and security, um, all of these things fell short as he took them as far as they could go, and he realized that none of these things can really give him that sense of meaning, that deep down longing to see that this is what I was made for. And so for four chapters, he's been looking and making observations, and for the first time, he begins to give us instruction and says, in light of all of these things, in light of what is true, here's what we must do. In light of all of these objective things, let me give some instruction and some exhortation and some challenge for you to live in a certain way. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. We're going to see what the teacher has to say to us as we hear from God this morning. And this is God's word. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. This is God's word. 
So for four chapters, he's been looking at all of these things under the sun. Remember that this, this terminology, under the sun, means everything literally under the sun. Things that we see with our eyes, things that we can empirically touch and see and experience. He's saying all of these things under the sun are completely meaningless. And so the temptation then is to think that as long as I'm doing something, quote unquote, spiritual, as long as I'm doing something, quote unquote, uh, dealing with the worship of God, then surely it's got to have meaning. And he's saying there is a way that we can worship and it still be meaningless, just as meaningless as all of these other roads that he's taken to try to find meaning. So what is it? How can we make our worship meaningless? Three things that we see in this text. The first thing that we're going to see is when we forget that God is in the house. We make our worship meaningless when we forget that God is in the house. If you look at what it says in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. And the first way we make our worship meaningless is when we forget that God is in the house. So the question is, what brings you here to worship this morning? For some of us, it is a deep-rooted desire to give to God the very best that we have. For others of us, it's, I, I come because I want to see my friends. This is the one time in the week I really get to see my friends because I don't drive. And so my parents drive me. Others of us come because that's what we do ever since we were young. It was a habit. Every Sunday morning, we wake up, we take a shower, we put on our Sunday best, and then we come to church. For others, it's, a, it's because mom and dad told me to come, whatever that might be. What is it in our hearts that leads us to worship today? The teacher is saying here, when we go to the house of worship, we need to remember whose house it is and who's here in the house with us. My uh, wife, Olivia, she, her parents live in Virginia, and so actually both, of our, our, both sets of our parents live in Virginia. So uh, we would oftentimes be hanging out at her uh, mom and dad's house, and we'd just kind of be hanging out. And then Olivia would say, okay, mom, we're going to leave. And she'd say this all would ha- be happening in Korean. Mom, we're going to leave. And she's like, you're leaving already? Where are you going? I said, we're going to David's parents' house. She's like, oh, you're going there. Do you have fruit? Do you have fruit? And we're like, no, we don't have fruit. And she's like, you better bring fruit. If you're going to your friend's house, you don't need to bring anything. If you're going to cousin's house, you don't need to bring anything. But if you're going to mother-in-law's house, you've got to bring fruit. And then she'll tell us what fruit is in season and where it's on sale, and we go buy it. Because she says, when you go to someone's house, you need to know whose house you're going to, because that determines what you bring to them. And when we come to worship, the teacher is saying, we are wise to understand that we come to the house of the Almighty God. And we come to give him our worship. So as we come to God today, what have we come to offer? What have we come to bring to him? In light of the fact that we just saying, if we could see how much he's worth, like if we, could, if we could actually see that for a moment, his power, his might, his endless love, and how completely foreign he is from us, then surely we'd never stop praising God. He, the, the, the problem that teachers seeing in Israel is that a lot of people are coming just out of their own convenience or out of their own uh, custom, out of their own habit. And he's saying, we're not giving God that which is due. Sometimes we have the attitude that we're just coming to, uh, the same way that we're coming just to chill and watch a soccer game at our friend's house. Or just, just, just stopping by our neighbors for a little chit-chat. He's saying, we're coming to the great house of God. That's what we're doing when we come. What is it that we give to him? Remember whose house you're coming to. I had a pet toad 
And you guys know this, uh, some of you know this, his name was Gregory. Uh, my brother and I found him when we were, uh, I think we were in high school or college, we found him at a prayer, prayer uh, mountain in Maryland and we brought him back home and tried to take care of him. And we didn't know, what, what are we supposed to do? We didn't know the first thing about taking care of toads. And so my brother went to the library. A library is, we didn't have internet really back then. We went to the library, which is a building that has books. And books, for some of y'all don't know, <laughs> papers bound together. And it's got information much like the internet, but it's usually about one subject or one topic, kind of like it's, it's the ancient predecessor to the Kindle, right? So we, he went to the library, and he went to this thing called the encyclopedia. Encyclopedias were published maybe like every 10 years, and so we knew that uh, at least if this is about 10 years old, uh, the dietary habits of toads probably haven't changed too much in the past 10 years. So he looked it up, and he said, they, okay, they, they eat crickets. So we went, and we said, let's go get some crickets. Thankfully, about five minutes away from our house, there was a PetSmart, and so we went and, and bought a thing of crickets. There was 15 of them for a dollar, and we would buy them, and then we'd put them in, and, and our toad Gregory would eat them. But one thing we quickly began to realize is that Gregory only eats the crickets that are alive, that are moving. And if they're moving, then he'll chase after them in a corner, and then he'll eat it. But the dead ones, he doesn't give them the time of day. And so can you imagine the horror in my, in my heart when I would go to PetSmart, and I would ask for a bag of crickets, they'd give me 15, and there'd be some dead ones in there? said, how dare you give me dead crickets? I'd take it, I'd say, give me my quarterback or whatever it is that this costs. Give me my money back. Can you imagine? Because, oh, the terror of me offering a dead cricket to my toad. You see, if we get that, if I get that upset, and I wasn't really that upset, but if I get that upset, upset enough that I would demand a new one, how much more the worship that we offer to our great and awesome God. In Israel, this is what people were doing when they brought this sacrifice. Oftentimes, people would say, you know what, I got about 100 sheep in my pen, and this dude's just about blind, so let's offer him as a sacrifice to God. Or this one's a little crip here, not talking about a gangster crip, but he's just crippled. They'd take him, and they'd, they'd offer him to God and say, here, God, is my, is my sacrifice. Here's my offering. See, we didn't need it anyways. And they would offer it to God. And that's what the teacher is saying. And throughout the Bible, that's what he's saying. I think there's a distinction because between a worshiper and the, and, and the, op, and the, uh, and the offering that the worshiper brings. See, sometimes I think we come to church feeling like these crickets. You know, like these crickets who are broken and lame and sometimes blind. And we feel like, you know what, I don't know. I, I, I just don't have it all together. How can I give my worship to God? I remember talking with a college student one time, and, and she's just going through all kinds of hardship at, at home, family issues, and um, she just would, would, every time she'd come to church, she'd just weep, and she's like, I've got nothing, I've got nothing to give. Like, how can I continue to, to give myself to God? And, and I said, you know what, if you've only got 20% in your heart to give, God doesn't ask you to give 75%. He says, you give Whatever you've got to him, that's what he takes in all of our brokenness, in all of our flaws, in all of our weaknesses, that's what he takes. But what the teacher is talking about here is this, is this irreverent attitude with which we come when we say, I'm not going to give my best to God. When we think that we're on equal par with God and we say, you know what, I'm just going to give you the leftovers or I'm going to give you the half-hearted stuff or I'm just going to give you uh, the convenient act of worship or the worship that doesn't mean anything to me. See, for God, it was never about just a song and a dance. It was never about a dance and a dollar. It was never about an hour and a half and a buck fifty. That's never what it was about. Never about these outside things, external things. It was about our hearts. And the offering that we give to God is a demonstration 
of the view of the worth of the God to whom we give. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. Remember whose house you're going to and remember who's in the house. That God Almighty is there. And that's where we're going and that's where we are. And that's what we've come to give. He used to sing a song. When we, when we begin to see that we come to the great house of God and he's here with us, like right now he's here with us. And that right now he's here in the midst of our songs, in the midst of our praise, as Psalm 22 says, he inhabits the praise of his people. Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or three gather in my name, I'm there. And so he's here with us. So we used to sing this song in, in, in my youth group days. It was, uh, it was a really cool song. It says, we have come to celebrate. We have come to sing of your great power and the glory of your name. You have set the captives free. You've made the blind eye see and to the poor you have proclaimed good news. In the house of the Lord, where your people come to dance and sing, in the house of the Lord, we rejoice in all the things you've done. And we've come to worship you, to give praise and thanks to you, knowing that you've only just begun. You've touched us by your grace. Lord, we long to see your face, to be with you through all eternity. And what if we came with that kind of an attitude and excitement to this house of God and said, this is who I'm coming to. This is where I'm coming. And wouldn't it change everything about what we do here? Wouldn't it change our perspective? I was thinking about this. If we did, then during the call to worship, there'd be such an anticipation of, of preparing our hearts and saying, God, I want to I hear what you have to say to me. I'm all into what, what's going on here. And then when the praise team comes and, and leads us in praise, it would be this reckless abandonment to the glory of God. You know, I don't sing well, and I'll be the first one to, or Olivia will be the first one to admit that, but I'll be the second one to admit that I don't sing very well. But what I lack in pitch and tone, I make up for in volume. I sing loud, and sometimes I sing loud. I feel bad for Albert when he's sitting here. I'm like, he's going to mess up playing his electric guitar because uh, I am just going to totally throw him off. But you know what? Something happens when we sing out loud. There are times when I come to, to, to Sunday worship, and I'm like, I've got this message to preach, and I, and I know it's, it's a good message, but some reason, God, I'm not, I'm not feeling this in my heart. It's very difficult for me. There are some Saturday mornings when I'm like, God, I just want to hide in a corner and call in a pinch hitter to preach for me because my heart just feels really weird and, and hard right now. But then when we sing and get into this time of praise and I sing and it's like proclamation leads to conviction, you know what I'm saying? Like we may not be feeling it or, or sensing it, but when we begin to, to declare that out loud and we begin to sing not only to God but not only to one another, we sing to our soul, that proclamation leads to a conviction within our hearts and something rises up within us. We were at a cell church meeting one time, and uh, babies had already gone to sleep, and so the, the mamas were a little bit concerned. Uh, are we going to sing praise tonight? Because we, we might wake up the babies. And um, I always believe that, that praise is so important because fellowship with each other is necessarily predicated upon fellowship with God. So we need to sing and worship God in order to have this. So I said, we'll, we'll just sing quietly. Our library voices, shh, we'll just be quiet, just like this. Guitar, just strum it softly. And then this one mama got mad at me. She's like, D.L., you sing the loudest here. You're the one who needs to be quiet. And so, like, my bad. But, but we sing. You see what happens in the Old Testament when we sing. In the New Testament when we sing, the power of God descends upon the people. Like shackles come off of prisoners in the book of Acts. Crazy things happen. Enemies begin to flee. Sickness begins to dissipate. Walls become, uh, start crumbling and falling down. When the people of God sing, and, and that's what happens when we come, we bless God, we bless one another. And then as we pray the, the uh, intercessory prayer, 
It's like you move forward in your seat in anticipation and say, God, that's what I want. And, and the silent or, or audible groans of amen in your soul, jumping on board saying, God, that's what I want to see. I want to see the nations come to know you through our missionaries. I want to see our, our congregation be all that you've called us to be. And then when the word of God is, is preached, you put your bib on because you're like, I'm about to feast on the word of God. I'm going to feast on the living word of God as it's proclaimed to me. And then we continue in our offering and then the benediction. I love, I love sitting under a benediction. When I'm not uh, leading worship, when I'm not giving the benediction, benediction is a blessing. It is a good word pronounced over the people. And so when I sit in a worship service and someone is given the benediction, I just lift my hands and this is a blessing of God, grace of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, yes, God, bless me with that. I need it. I need it. And then I am sent out. I'm like, I'm ready to live. I'm ready to go. Filled with the blessing of God in my life to live for him this week. Oh my God, that's what I long for. That's what I need and that's what we need. When we remember that God is in the house, that's what he wants to do. See, we make our worship meaningless when we forget that God is in the house. But the second way that we do that also is when we come to speak rather than to listen. Uh, we were at, when, there was a time when we were doing a nursing home ministry and every month we'd go out to a nursing home and uh, would, you know, do crafts with the residents there or uh, sing songs to them, play bingo with them. And there's this one time, I'm not sure if I was there. It's like one of those things where um, people talk about it so much that it's become part of, uh, it's almost become part of your life and you don't know if it really, ha- if you were there or not. But it's one time a group of our, our folks were there and uh, they wanted to uh, present the gospel to the residents there. And many of them were elderly folks, and many of them had a difficult time hearing. And so um, they said, well, let's do some of these um, mimes, these skits that don't require any talking, right? Let's do these things that we do on the mission field. And, and so they're doing this thing, and, and one of the residents was apparently getting a little bit frustrated, and she yelled out, and she said, talk louder! I can't hear you! Well, it was clear that the point was that there's not supposed to be any hearing going on there. It was a silent skit. But we too have problems with our listening, don't we? <laughs> it says here, don't be quick with your mouth and, or hasty in your heart, in verse 2, to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. In verse, uh, verse 1, the same part says, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. See, a, a lot of times we come to worship um, it's wanting to sing and to pray and to talk to God about all the things. But in the economy of God, uh, listening is more important than speaking. In any relationship where you've got a superior and inferior relationship, a greater and a lesser party, it's always due reverence to listen to your superiors, right? You think about this in, in like the army. You've got a private, and the privates are all standing in line. You don't hear a private go to their lieutenant, to their captain, and just start talking and talking and talking. The only thing they're supposed to say is, sir, yes, sir. That's all they say. They don't talk a lot. They just listen. He's saying, this is what we're supposed to do. See, this is why in in, in the great commands of Scripture, the, the most important command in the Old Testament, in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. It doesn't say, speak, O Israel. It says, hear, O Israel. Because we come to listen. In the anatomy of worship, ears have primacy over our lips. Right? That's how it is when it comes to worship. That's how it comes in our relationship with God. Right? We listen, I think we listen far too less, myself included. 
I want to talk to God about all the things that I want to do, about all the plans that I have, about all the dreams that I have, about all the needs that I have, and, and I don't listen to God as well or as often as I need to, as I should. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, maybe you're a little bit like me also. God wants to speak to us, and he wants us to listen. He wants us to listen. There's, um, and I, I, I say this a lot, but sometimes I think we have this attitude when we come to listening to the word of God here. Like, you know what, I'll give, uh, I'll give DL about 10 minutes. I've got about 10 minutes in me, and if he doesn't get, get my attention, then I'm going to tune out. As if it's all up to the preacher here. I, uh, in no way, I'm not trying to excuse myself. I need to do my part, but you have to do your part also. It always takes two. It takes one to make a thing go right when it comes to listening to the Word of God, but it makes two to make it out of sight. And here's, what I, here's what I mean. Uh, Tim Keller says it. He says, the difference between a good sermon and a bad sermon is right here in the pulpit. I know this myself. I know that if I don't look at this text, if I don't understand what the text is saying, if I don't do my homework, if I don't prepare well, if I don't think through this and pray through this, then it's going to be a bad sermon. But if I at least do what I'm supposed to do, then it's going to be a good sermon, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a good sermon. But the difference between a good sermon and a great sermon is all you. In other words, I can do my part, but if you don't do your part in preparing, in being ready, in, in listening with eager anticipation that word of God is going to speak and fall into your heart and soak like rain into your soul, then it's just going to remain a good sermon, the difference between a good sermon and a bad sermon lies in the pulpit. The difference between a good sermon and a great sermon lies in the pew. It takes two to make it out of sight. And a lot of times we leave that responsibility to somebody else. To say, here, it's, it's up to you. You talk, and if it's good enough, or if it's entertaining enough, or if I'm engaging, if I'm tracking, if I'm not too tired, then I'll receive it. It takes two to make it out of sight. And so he says, listen, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, and don't be quick with your mouth. And in understanding this relationship between us and God, that we're on earth and God is in heaven, it causes us to say, Father, I want to listen to what you have to say to me. Sometimes we, we, we come to hear the word of God, and, and we hear something, and we're like, oh my gosh, that's so good. I really wish Chuck was here to hear that. You know, don't we say that? Oh my gosh, that was really good. Yeah, we need, to love, we need to love our children. I really wish that such and such in my cell church was here. Or I really wish that my parents were here to listen to that. It, it, instead of turning these things outward first, uh, we have to apply them inward to our hearts. George Whitfield gave this amazing sermon that said how to listen well to a sermon. And one of the things that he cites is in the Last Supper, when Jesus is, is talking to his 12 disciples on the night that he was to be, be betrayed, he went around, he, he was talking and he said, you know what, one of you who dips his bread in my cup is going to betray me later tonight. And the immediate response of the disciples was not, oh, I knew there was something fishy about Peter. Or that Judas, he's always sneaking off by himself with the money bag. What did they say? What did they say when they heard Jesus say that? They said, surely not I, Lord, is it me? Is it me who's going to do that? They took that and they began to apply that inwardly into their hearts. What does this mean for me? They began to ask God, what are you saying to me? Jesus, what are you saying to me? And this is what we need to, this is what we need to do as we listen to the word of God. God, is it, what are you saying to me? And as you call people maybe to go out to the mission field, oh yeah, it'll be good for them to go. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? 
I have heard you calling in the night, and I will go, Lord. As you lead me, I will go, and I will hold your people in my heart. Is it me, God, that you're telling to go? Is it me that you're telling to prepare better for worship? Is it me, God, what is it that you're saying? What are you trying to speak to me? And if we're hearing the same thing over and over and over again, you feel like God is repeatedly saying the same thing over and over, maybe that's because God really wants you to listen this time. Get it into your heart. How can I take this and live it into my, uh, and apply it into my life? We offer meaningless worship to God when we forget that God is in the house and when we come to speak rather than listen. But the last thing that we see, we make worship meaningless. Lastly, when we make promises without following through. It says in, in verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And don't protest to the temple messenger. Oops, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? And we live in a culture and a society that is good at breaking promises. That's good at hearing politicians talk about something and not following through. I've mentioned this before, but I'm reminded of it now that uh, when I was in elementary school, when one of my buddies was running for uh, student government president in fourth grade, he promised that he would change all of the water fountains to um, dispense chocolate milk. How are you going to do that? But that was his promise, and I don't remember if he won or not, but I'm sure if he won, he didn't fulfill that promise. We live in an age where we hear a lot of empty promises. Marriage vows which end up being broken, right? baptismal vows, which end up being broken. La- uh, last night we heard about um, a gal who, when she was young, her mom said, I'm going to bring you a harmonica. I'll bring it home for you. And that promise was never fulfilled. And now 40, some 40 years later, she still carries the scars of that broken promise in her heart. We live in a culture in which we easily make and break promises. And he's saying, we make our worship a little bit less meaningful. When we make a bunch of promises, I make a vow to do this and this and this without following through on them or without desiring to follow through on them. See, when in the Old Testament, when vows were made, they were not voluntary. They, sometimes people would make them and, and it, it wasn't, I mean, so they, they were voluntary. They weren't required. But here's how people would do it. They would say, as they go to the temple, they'd say, God, if you do something for me, then I make a vow that I will give you this. For example, my son is sick. If you heal my son, then I will give you uh, the choicest 20% of my flock rather than 10%. Or, God, if you give, grant, me, um, grant me a son, this is what Hannah said in 1 Samuel, if you grant me a son, then I will do this for you. It was a vow that was contingent upon God doing something. But of course, the temptation is that when God fulfills his end of the promise, it's easy for us to say, oops, never mind, I didn't really mean it. And to say to the temple messenger, you know what, my vow was a mistake. Kind of like the guy who, um, there's a guy who, um, two guys, they were, uh, their car broke down on the side of the road and this, this country road and there was nobody near. For two hours, cars came by. I'm sorry, no cars came by for two hours. They're just sitting there stranded, they're waiting. And, what are we going to do? Cell phone reception is nothing out here. There's not a store within gas station within the nearest like five miles of here. And we haven't seen car in, in ages. And so one of them said, you know what? Um, I'm, I, I go to church every now and then. So I'll, I'll, I'll pray to God. And this is what he prayed. He said, God, if you send somebody right now, then I promise I'll stop playing golf on Sundays. I'll stop drinking alcohol. I'll stop smoking. 
I'll stop womanizing. I'll stop all of these things if only you'd provide a car right now. All of a sudden, a car came by. And he said, oh, God, never mind. A car's coming. It's okay. <laughs> See, we, we often do things like this, don't we? God, if you, maybe not, maybe not in that extreme a way, but God, if you, if you just, if just let me get married in the next three years, then I promise I'll do this for you. And then God gives us that which we want or that which we need. And then we renege on our vows and say, never mind, never mind, God. Think, you know, what makes it even more in, insidious is the fact that it's not mandatory. God didn't tell everyone you need to make a vow, and then when you make a vow, you need to fulfill it. It was completely voluntary, and that's what makes it all the more difficult. That's what makes it all the more offensive is that he didn't tell us to do it. We're just voluntarily saying, God, I'm going to do this for you. And then when we don't do it, when we don't follow through, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, that's when... That's when we make our worship a little bit less meaningful. See, here, all of these things, here's, here's what's happening at the very end of the day. Is that our inability to recognize that God is in the house, our inability to listen rather than speak, our inability to follow through on our vows that we make to God, all of it stems from one simple, simple mistake that we make. That's why he says at the end of verse 7, he says, therefore, stand in awe of God. Our failure to recognize who God is and the awesomeness and the wonder and the beauty of our God is what causes us to give less than our best worship to Him. That's what causes us to give less than our best is because we don't recognize this immense distinction between the Creator and the creature, between the God who made us perfect in holiness. He is and us who are sinful. See, when people stood in awe of God, people recognized the awe of God throughout Scripture. When people like Moses would stand before the presence of God and he would have to take his shoes off in the holiness of God. When people like Nadab and Abihu offered up unholy offering to God, offered up unholy fire to God, and they were destroyed. When people at Beth Shemesh were all killed, many of them were killed because they stared into the Ark of the Covenant. All of these people were being reminded that you need to stand in awe of God, that he's not your chummy chum, he's not just your buddy buddy. He is almighty God, and you've come to the great house of God. That's where we've come, and that's who he is. When Isaiah received this call in the ministry, he said, Woe is me, I am destroyed. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst an unclean people, and I've seen the glory of God. He said, Who am I? Woe is me. Not only should there be a wow in worship, there should be a woe in worship when we see the greatness of who he is. And this immense chasm between who we are and who he is and the fact that we could not give our good worship to God is the reason why God said that's enough. And so he sent his son all for love. Jesus Christ came to show us what perfect and true worship is. That he came from heaven above into this earth. An earth that breaks their promises so easily. An earth that says we hail you as king and they say we nail you as a criminal. Just a couple days later, this earth into this world he came. And Jesus lived this perfect life. Why did he do all of these things? He's the one who understood whose house he's in. And he said, zeal for my father's house will consume me. That is not about me. It's not about me. He would every morning wake up early and he would listen to the voice of the father so that he wasn't wooed by the crowds. He would listen. And in the pattern prayer that he taught that we often repeat, it was not known for its verbosity, but it was known for its brevity. Our Father who art in heaven, and we can say it in 30 seconds, that he listened 
before he spoke, even though he was God himself. This is who he was, and he fulfilled his oath, even though it hurt. Then, my God, let it be, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me. But if not, then I make a vow that I will always be true, and I will stand with you according to the promise that I've made. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, the only true worshiper who stood completely in awe of God, was crucified. Was crucified because of the failure of us worshipers to do that which he has called us to do. And yet why is it that we can so freely come, we can sing and dance and celebrate in light of an awesome God? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 tell us that he has made it possible. A new and living way has been opened up through the blood of Jesus, so now we can come with confidence before such a God. We can stand forgiven, we can stand in grace, and we can offer him the worship that's due his name. That kind of grace draws us, that kind of of wonder calls us and beckons us to say, we've come to the great house of God. Let's give our best worship to him. Let's pray together. As we respond to his word this afternoon, let's take a moment to reflect on our worship, the fact that we've come to the great house of almighty God. Let's take a few moments right now to go before the Lord and If we just want to ask God, forgive me for the ways in which I've come, offering you my crippled crickets and my lame and blind insects of offering to you. I haven't given my best. I haven't prepared the way that I ought to. I've been afraid of what people around me will think, and that's inhibited me from giving my best. Forgive me. For others of us, maybe we just want to be still and listen and let the word of God soak into our hearts right now. Maybe others, we want to revisit a vow that we've made at some point. Say, Lord, I come back to that place and say, God, help me to be who you want me to be. Your word, I will strive to obey. Let's take a minute or two to just come before the Lord and respond to his word in light of the awesomeness and the beauty and the worth of our God. Let's respond by going to him in prayer for just a couple moments and then we'll close. Father in heaven, some of us have searched all of our lives under the sun trying to find meaning. For some of us in here who are not followers of Jesus Christ, maybe as we come into this place, we just feel this tug in our heart that there's something here that I'm missing. There's something here that's real and raw. Something that is bigger than me that just feels right about this place. the tug of the Spirit may be calling on such people. Father, worship is what we are made for, worship of you. And we thank you that as we've come into this place, we didn't make up this idea that we should gather together and sing to you. But Father, we thank you that this is you who call us at your invitation to come. 
to find what we were meant to do in the presence of God, in the arms of love. This is what life is about. And so we pray that you would help us this morning as we come to come back to that place, to come back to the cross and to throw ourselves and to cling in desperate love to the grace of God. And there at the cross that we would bow and see the beautiful one, the awesome, majestic one all over again. And that we would give our worship to you. We thank you for loving us. Because you've loved us, we can love you too. So lead us and guide us. Seal this message in our hearts. Cause a word to become flesh. May we live it for our joy, for your glory, for the sake of the world in need of you. We thank you so much and we pray in Jesus' name.